0: You know, I guess I think I've always been a professional critic, you know, or some sort of professional appreciator or something.
1: This is serious business here, man. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world.
2: Over the last 10 years, one of the most important and growing genres in music has been electronic dance music. It's gone from filling nightclubs to packing stadiums across the
1: world. I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. Today, electronic dance music goes under the Sound Opinions Microscope. And later in the show, Greg and I will review the new album from Garbage.
2: If I was your boyfriend, I'd never let you go. I could take you places you ain't never been before. Baby, take a chance so you'll never ever know. I got money in my hands that I really like to blow. Swiped, swiped, swiped on you. Tell them by the fire while we're eating fondue. I don't know about me, but I know about you. So say hello to Posado in three, two, swiped. <laughs> Like to be everything you want. That is Justin Bieber, who was the subject of a recent NPR music report on how tickets for his upcoming tour could have possibly sold out so fast. Apparently, the entire tour sold out in a matter of an hour. So NPR looked at one particular venue in order to get a handle on why these tickets sold so fast. They looked at the two Madison Square Garden shows at the end of November, which apparently both of them sold out in a minute, meaning that 20,000 tickets per show went in 30 seconds. That's like 1,000 tickets a second. How does that happen? They called up Gary Bongiovanni of Polestar magazine, a man you and I have both talked to, Jim. He's one of the great objective voices on the concert industry today, probably the leading expert on it. And he said, wait a minute. You're talking about 20,000 tickets per show, but the fact of the matter is, most of these tickets were probably not even available to the public on the day of the sale. Most of them had already been spoken for. You've got a credit card presale, you've got a fan club presale, you've got record companies, radio stations, management all getting a piece of the pie, wanting to withhold tickets so that they can give them out to their fans. So by the time you end up selling to the public, fewer than half of those tickets are actually available. Point to that Taylor Swift show that Billboard did a study on in Nashville at the Summit Center a year or two ago. 13,330 tickets apparently sold for that show in, in a minute or two. When in actuality, only 1,500 tickets were made available to the public once the fan club, the management, the agents, the record labels, the presale from the credit card company, and the fan club presale got a hold of them. So you're not seeing the public actually getting access to these tickets. You're saying the game is rigged. <laughs> yes, it is. Bon Giovanni also goes on to highlight the secondary ticket market. Jim, you and I have been talking about these scalpers for a number of decades and how they dominate the ticket market. They have become Extremely sophisticated in siphoning off the top tickets with these bot programs, these computers that basically allow them to get ahead of the line and get the best tickets for the shows before anybody else has access to them for the Bieber show, for example, even though it's sold out in a minute, more than two thousand tickets were almost immediately available on secondary ticket sites. face value for those bieber tickets forty nine fifty you go to these secondary sites and you 're paying a minimum of one hundred and twenty two dollars sometimes as high as $4,500 for an individual Peeber ticket. So you're wondering, why can't I get a ticket to my favorite artist show? That's why.
0: We can dance if we want to. We can leave your friends behind. Because your friends don't dance. And if they don't dance, well, they're no friends of mine. Say we can go where we want to, a place where they will never find and we can act like we come from out of this world, leave the real one far behind and we can
1: dance. Greg, you may or may not want to dance, but I'll tell you somebody who does. <laughs> Robert FX Sillerman. You and I know that name, our listeners may not. More than any other individual in the history of the American concert industry, he transformed it into a giant corporate enterprise. Sillerman started out with a company called SFX in radio, buying up small stations across the country, combining them, and then selling this massive conglomeration of stations to Clear Channel, which eventually became Live Nation. What they did in consolidating radio, they did in consolidating live music. Sillerman, at 64, is not content to be retired listening to his personal musical favorites, Bob Dylan and Paul Simon. He's turning to EDM, electronic dance music, which we're about to address as blowing up as the giant new stadium rock. He just bought a company called Disco Productions in Louisiana that was founded by a rave promoter, and he intends in the next year to spend a billion dollars buying up other small regional dance promoters across the country. This new company is going to be called SFX Entertainment, revisiting his earlier name, and then he's going to take it public. Talk about this underground sound going mainstream and corporate in a big way. This guy wants to see it happen, and if you remember the buzzword about what Live Nation was and what Clear Channel was to radio, it was Synergy. We're going to put this audience together, and then we are going to sell them to advertisers. Once again, that's the vision he's going to try for the third time in the dance world. Skrillex, Diesto, David Guetta, Dubstep, Drum and Bass. If these words and names don't mean anything to you, Sound Opinions is here to help this week. EDM, or electronic dance music, is a genre and a movement that is exploding around the world, especially over the last decade. DJing once was this anonymous thing where somebody hid behind two turntables. Now it is a celebrity phenomenon. Artists like Skrillex and Deadmau5 are heard everywhere, from sports arenas to high school dances, and it can be tough to try to sample such a vast and moving sound. We
2: wanted to take our listeners through an overview of EDM, and to do so we enlisted the help of Philip Sherburn. He's a contributor to Spin Magazine and the writer behind their Control Voltage blog. Philip, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. So EDM, electronic dance music, your article, a cover story in Spin Magazine recently, says it's the biggest single dance movement, I guess since the disco era, right? How do you explain why this, of all the dance movements that we've seen in recent decades, this one seems to be the biggest?
0: You know, I was afraid you were going to start with that question. <laughs> <laughs> Let's shoot um, big. As to the why of it, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of baffled by it every day. I, I've been into dance music, electronic music since the early or mid-1990s. And I think the current uh, explosion sort of snuck up on me. But I think, really fundamentally, I think it's about sort of a generational shift. You know, I'm a little bit older. I'm I'm 40 years old. And when I was coming up through electronic music for the first time, there was a real divide between, you know, the the rock kids and the rave kids and sort of the never, never the twain shall meet. But I think we're seeing now a generation of kids that have grown up with computers integrated into their lives more fully than, than previous generations. They don't think anything about... Computerized rhythms or, or programmed music. Uh, they don't have the same kind of hang ups about authenticity and inauthenticity that uh, members of older generations might, I think.
1: Well, we're basically the same age, Philip, and uh, we we have seen this before. There was that one strange moment in the mid-90s when the thing that was going to replace grunge was going to be rave music, techno. You know, and there was some success with Fatboy Slim and The Prodigy, as you point out in your article. Of course, Moby, selling to the soccer moms of the universe. (laughs) But it did not become the next big thing. What is different about this wave versus the one 10 or 15 years ago?
0: Well, you know, and I'm I'm just speculating here, but I, I suspect a lot of it probably has to do with the the rise of the internet. I mean, obviously, we we had the internet in 1997, but we didn't have the same internet models of distribution. I think it's it's just a question of access. Probably, it's it's much easier for people to get a hold of music today, types of music that they maybe wouldn't have found in their local mom and pop record store or in the local Best Buy back in 1997. I mean, at the time, obviously, you had the Prodigy being released through major labels and distributed fairly widely. But this time, kids or people can can do their research on the Internet. They can listen to anything. I
2: think there's just a much more extensive
0: infrastructure for the music to spread and for fan communities to grow.
2: I think we're also seeing this music cross over into commercial radio in a big way. Artists like uh, David Guetta are collaborating with these pop performers and having huge hits. I think that's a difference too as we're starting to see the mainstreaming of this music into commercial radio.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, even not just David Guetta, but also, you know, Lady Gaga, she came up I think in it was 2009 was the year she broke and that was the same year as Guetta's When Love Takes Over.
2: It's complicated always is that's just the way it goes feels like I waited for
0: And I think there was a sort of a conditioning of the airwaves to play these kind of four, four, four to the floor rhythms and, and bright, brassy synthesizers. And I think we could even probably look to crunk as to helping pave the way for it as well, because it was sort of crunk that, that broke these ravey sounds on the airwaves in the first place.
2: Yeah, you had Lil John with Usher, what was that, about a decade ago, right? The southern dirty funk style from Atlanta, et cetera, crossing over with these mainstream R&B performers. So you're saying that's, that's the roots of this in terms of just getting ears sort of attuned to this type of music?
0: Well, I think, you know, that's one of the roots of it. I was When I was preparing for this interview, I was kind of making a, a timeline mapping off the different points. And to me, I really see a continuum that's been building for a long, long time. I mean, you go back to 2006. That was when Daft Punk had their pyramid performance at Coachella, where they came out dressed like robots. And that, and I pointed out in the Spin article, was sort of perfectly timed to catch a rising wave of nostalgia, because of course, that was nine years after their breakthrough record. And so you had people at Coachella who were seeing Daft Punk in part as, as kind of a nostalgia thing, and that, in turn, generated a whole new wave of popularity for them. You go back further, you have, around the year 2000, the whole electroclash phenomenon, which was, you know, Fisher Spooner, Miss Kitten, uh, you had LCD sound systems losing my edge. And that was, to me, I think that's a really crucial moment in the breaking down of barriers between a rock scene and the electronic scene. I mean, that was when it first became cool for the rock kids to be into electronic beats.
2: Yeah, I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge. The kids are coming up from behind. I'm losing my edge. I'm losing my edge to the kids from... France and from London.
1: It's interesting you mentioned that Daft Punk Coachella performance. There's a great line you have in your spin piece, The New Rave Generation, describing a Skrillex show as, quote, Hieronymus Bosch's Garden of Earthly Delights meets the bridge battle from Apocalypse Now. (laughs) Now, Moby always was a performer. He threw himself around the stage like Iggy Pop. But seeing the Aphex Twin, seeing Fatboy Slim, you know, it was a guy in the shadows in front of some some computer (laughs) machines, right? You know, Skrillex is a performer. It seems like a lot of these... new New Wave EDM artists are really putting on a show.
0: Yeah, they really are. I think I described it in the piece as an audiovisual arms race because you're really seeing everybody trying to outdo everybody else in terms of the complexity of their rig. I mean, you've got Skrillex now has some kind of crazy motion capture video thing. Hmm. Plastic Man, a.k.a. Richie Houghton, who was from Canada but kind of came up in the Detroit scene, you know, he was for a long time one of the most sort of minimalist people in techno, he was all about a dark room, a strobe light, and extremely reduced music and And now he's bringing back his Plastic Man project as this massive, immersive audio visual LED display where he's performing inside of this this kind of light structure. You've got Dead Mouse with a Crazy show. I mean, everybody's hiring these designers to do crazier and crazier stage shows. I think that's obviously a part of the music's growing popularity is because people love a show. They, they love to be dazzled. Personally, I, I think that sometimes takes away some of what made electronic dance music special in the first place. I know that my prejudices lean towards a dark room and a strobe light yeah. and an anonymous DJ in the corner.
1: Well, what I thought was magical about the initial 90s rave scene when it crossed over from the U.K. to the U.S. was there was no star you know, everyone in the room was a star. Everyone was a performer, and in a way that punk started out with no separation between audience and the person on stage. Uh, that's how I experienced early raves here in Chicago and in the in the you know out in the woods in Wisconsin.
0: I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, that was really, especially in 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 North America. I think in Detroit and Chicago, you know, it was it was a sort of a, there was a democratizing force in the nightclub of the, the DJ in the corner you certainly had in in the 90s a tendency i mean the the whole kind of anonymous faceless techno thing you know there was a tendency for the dj's not to be recognizable the focus was often more on the record label or the scene and the community than it was on the artist as a figurehead as it were mm. and that has certainly changed especially with you know somebody like skrillex who is incredibly recognizable you know, now you have blogs that are like girls that look like Skrillex just because he has such a <laughs> recognizable haircut.
2: Well, it's, it's odd because they are becoming celebrities. You've got Skrillex on the cover of, of magazines all across the world. You've got a guy like Afrojack who's this 6-foot-10-inch Dutch DJ who's hanging out with su- supermodels and celebrities and is almost as famous as the people he's hanging out with. Why have these people become such celebrities and personalities is it because record companies are doing a better job of marketing them i mean what has changed in in that world where they've gone from these anonymous guys behind the dark turntable as you said to these out front personalities i'm tempted to say that
0: a lot of it does have to do with marketing getting savvier I would imagine that the major labels are signing artists that they know they can sell kind of as a personality in addition to just being a beat maker. But I I think, to be honest, that it's a shift that's happened across club culture, even in more, quote-unquote, underground communities. And underground's a term that I'm, I'm leery to use, but I think you look at supposedly non-commercial DJs, and there's still this, more and more they have personalities, they have logos, they have... They're sort of larger-than-life figures uh, in a way that they didn't used to be. You know, in the underground, that takes kind of the shape of these DJ shaman types who play Ibiza and drive audiences, you know, take them on a wild ride. Generation Kick and Bass.
2: We'll continue our overview of EDM with Spin Magazine's Philip Sherburn in a minute on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later in the show, we'll give a buy it, burn it, or trash it rating to the new album from Garbage.
1: Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DiRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And today we are joined by Spin Magazine contributor Philip Sherburn. Philip covers the world of EDM or electronic dance music in all of its countless permutations. This sound has quickly become one of the most popular in the world today. And at the center of it is usually the DJ or the producer. Names like Skrillex, David Guetta, Afrojack, and Rusko all command respect and big bucks in clubs and stadiums around the country. Philip, who joins us from Germany, is going to help with a primer on some of the more important names out there, as well as some of the up-and-comers. Philip, let's start with Skrillex. What is this guy about musically?
0: Well, (laughs) what isn't he about (laughs) musically? You know, he was a screamo kid. He played in this band from first to last, making kind of screamy, hardcore music, was on tour with the warp tour and things like that he started making sort of eclectic chiming electro pop and then um, when he created skrillex it it was i mean if you want to hear a description of the music it's somehow uh it's a cross between what's called electro house and dubstep he's a little different than most because he doesn't stick to a single genre and i think that's been part of his um part of his success His tempos are all over the map, whereas most dance music subgenres stick to a pretty strict tempo. He draws wildly from widely from all kinds of music and his DJ sets are sort of a mash-up type of thing, sort of like too many DJs or girl talk, in which mm. he's throwing in snippets and snatches of anything from, you know, reggae to Michael Jackson. And kind of giving it the the Skrillex touch of of lots of rapid fire drum machine beats and these insane searing bass noises, you know, battling robot sounds. Mm.
2: Yes, he is eclectic. But the one term that you dropped there, and I'm surprised it took us this long to get to it, dubstep. Mm. Uh, That seems to be the big subset of electronic dance music today that everybody seems to be referencing. The best I can get, shuffling drums with a distorted bass line. And that's certainly the simplified version. What's your take on dubstep and why has it become so dominant a sound?
0: Well, dubstep has, I mean, it has an interesting history. It's been with us for at least a decade now. It really started emerging in, in London and to a lesser extent Bristol in around 2001, 2002, coming out of a style called UK Garage. It was a slow... Sub-oriented, I mean, based in, in sort of Jamaican sonics, but with a heavier electronic edge, usually at 140 beats per minute, but with an emphasis on the halftime, kind of the, the beats on the one and three. So it was a slow, skanking, um, kind of stoner friendly music that got played in basements in London. As that developed, it took on sort of heavier and heavier overtones, more of a kind of a macho swagger to it, especially with artists like uh, Rusko and Caspa. many different types of dubstep as there are dubstep artists and a lot of the more let's say experimental artists in dubstep stopped using the term entirely as dubstep became more and more aligned with this kind of hyper aggressive what's sometimes called bro step um, <laughs> very very macho very swaggering that's um, it. that's yeah.
1: an interesting injection though into the electronic dance world because it was very woman positive positive throughout the 90s, a very gay positive. There's, there's. you make mention in the Spin article too, there's a kind of uh, machismo now going on that's a little distressing.
0: I mean, there is, there certainly is in the music. You know, there's an artist, an Israeli dubstep artist named Borgor, who, who's just a flat out misogynist in his lyrics. Um, but I think I see him as sort of the limp biscuit of dubstep.
1: <laughs> Girl, when we in bed act like a hope Yeah, I wanna ride my pony some rodeo, you lots of diamonds, spending tons of dough. You better watch some porn and show me that I don't know. Girl, when... me like a hole,
0: but at the same time, I you know, I have to say when I I went to the electric daisy carnival, which is this massive, massive rave in Las Vegas last summer. And I was really struck by the fact that they were playing the hardest, most disgusting, face melting dubstep at the dubstep tent possible, and yet there were tons of of women there, girls, young women, tons of guys, and the I didn't see any macho ness. You know, the the girls were were pumping their fists as hard as the guys were, and I didn't think that I was seeing you know Woodstock '99 or something. Okay,
1: <laughs> Philip. Um, before we leave dubstep, who are the big names? that you think are going to connect with the American audience, or who is the music industry banking on connecting with the American audience?
0: Well, one of them is, is uh, Rusko, who's a, a young British DJ and producer. He put out his first album a couple of years ago on uh, Diplo's Mad Decent label. He's just put out another album this summer. What that record is doing is what I think a lot of dubstep artists are doing, is they're, they're realizing you can't just do the same 140 BPM rhythm, Over and over again, people kind of want more. And so his new album is all over the place from sort of vintage uh, jungle and drum and bass vibes to a whole lot of trance like big, brassy, glassy synthesizers and and wailing divas. which to me I think reflects
2: kind of the mixing of styles that we're seeing at all, at all of these festivals. What about David Guetta? He, he's a name that keeps coming up. He obviously had some big crossover success. What's his sound like?
0: David Guetta, to me, you know, I think of David Guetta and I think pop music. I, I think mm-hmm. that, you know, it, it uses a, a four-to-the-floor rhythm, but for the most part it scans to me much more as pop than as dance music. But, you know, that's a, that's a fuzzy line, and I suppose it has as much to do with, with the eye of the beholder
1: she's the
0: But yeah, he was a he was a popular French DJ and producer throughout the '90s. He had a very successful party in Ibiza. Ibiza, um, kind of
1: ground central, the yeah. island in Spain where all yeah. the Brits would go to have spring break. Ground central for rave universe.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so so David Guetta, you know, he he got his start there, and he he kind of kept working in his style of, let's say, slightly poppy, sophisticated house music. And toward the late 2000s, he had the idea to start hooking up with American hip-hop artists and R&B singers, and that was really what um, launched him into the stratosphere.
2: Dead Mouse is is huge right now as well. Why is Dead Mouse rising above the pack? I mean, he closed uh, Lollapalooza last year on the main stage, which was, you know, it made news. I mean, here you had this rock-oriented festival being closed by a electronic dance music artist. You know, a hundred thousand people out there to see Dead Mouse. Yes,
0: I think Dead Mouse, obviously, he has. You know, he wears this uh, gigantic mouse head on stage. It's his trademark, his logo. It's a very smart bit of marketing. He's also, he's dedicated. He's obsessive. He's on the forums. He's online. He's, uh, you know, he's living as transparently as anybody in contemporary Internet time. I th- you know, he's, he, he's out there, and people connect with that. People see him, and they, they see him as being somebody they can relate to. He's a little bit snarky. He says what he thinks.
1: He says what he means. Uh, and I think people see that as genuine. You know what I don't understand, Philip? We have the major labels descending. It's one thing to have the new rave culture on the cover of Spin. It's another to have it on the cover of Billboard. And Atlantic Records and Interscope are going into this world in a big way. I don't understand what's in it for any of these artists to get in bed with the old system.
0: I suspect that a lot of it has to do with infrastructure again. You know, these days I given that selling records is less important for a lot of these people than than getting bookings, DJ or live performance bookings, I suspect that the label they're signed to might actually be less important than the booking agency they're signed to. When I was doing my research on the Electric Daisy Carnival festival last year, just out of curiosity, I put together a spreadsheet for every artist on on the bill, and then who the different booking agencies were. And there were really only a handful of booking agencies being represented at that festival, and I think it would be the same at the other real, really big, kind of big-money festivals like Ultra Music Festival or the Identity Tour. Mm. You've got a couple of mega promoters who have sort of divided up the market. And so I think for a DJ or a musician that wants to break in and make money and be really successful, you know, that's kind of what they're looking at.
1: So meet the new bosses, not all that different from the old bosses. <laughs> Something like that.
2: What about the scale of this? Is, is it is it tenable? I mean, in, going forward, we're talking about stadium-level shows now in North America, for the first time perhaps in, in terms of electronic dance music. The things that destroyed the rave scenes in Chicago a decade-plus ago, you know, the idea of all these young people gathering, gathering in a large place and, you know, drugs were being distributed and, and there were some incidents with, with violence, but mostly just overdosing, where, where they were poorly managed events. And now the mainstreaming of this apparently has allowed this to become a little bit better managed and allowing it to become basically the new stadium rock. I mean, is that the future of dance music, where it is going to become this sort of mainstream type thing playing at arenas and, and stadiums? Or do you see it unsustainable at that level?
0: I mean, I definitely think that's the way it's going in North America. I think it it is becoming analogous to stadium rock or any other really big ticket entertainment where people are driving by the tens of thousands to a site somewhere outside the city or something like that. As far as the poor management and the and the drug overdoses that you mentioned, I mean, I think it's important to remember that you know Bonnaroo had a drug death as well. I mean, this isn't something that that's limited to electronic dance music. But I do think that the way electronic dance music is developing in North America is very different than the way it has developed in Europe and across the rest of the world. North America doesn't really have a nightclub infrastructure. Here in Europe, I live in Berlin, and every city has many nightclubs. I mean, even small cities and a a DJ can make a living, you know, touring from town to town, playing in small cities in Spain you or I maybe have never heard of. The nightclubs are open until four or six or eight in the morning, or sometimes they're open all weekend long, as they are here in Berlin. And there are people can kind of conditioned to this. I mean, it's just part of part of life is is going out to a nightclub. The states doesn't really have that. We're a, we're a much bigger country, it makes it harder to tour. You're not going to do a bus tour as a DJ generally. Our cities, they often. Uh, I used to live in San Francisco, and last call was at two, and then the clubs would close at either two or four. It's hard to kind of transplant dance music culture as it exists in Europe to, the, to North America. And so I think we, we will see it continue to develop along the lines of big, massive stadium shows and raves and things like that.
2: Developer, are there any other artists we should be talking about in regard to EDM? Uh, Tiësto, I know, came up early on, and he's obviously a, a huge name in this. I heard his annual income r- reported by Wall Street Journal twenty million. <laughs> Not bad, yeah. for, a, for a dance DJ. Uh, what is it about the sound that is connecting with people on such a large scale?
0: Well, with Tiësto, I, I part of it's the sound, and I think part of it's also um, Tiësto, the the figurehead, the icon, the brand. I mean, he's. He's changed his sound quite a bit in, in recent years. I mean, like a lot of people, you know, he started out doing trance, um, kind of uplifting trance, these big sort of neoclassical melodies, not a lot of black American influence, much more of a white, how do I say this, a, a white European influence. These days he's doing more of sort of a gnarly, much more electronic sounding electro house. Um, he teamed up with Diplo. But I, th- I think really with Tiesto, you know, he's, he tours nonstop. He puts out tons of mixed CDs. He's a figurehead. You know, he's one of these people that arrived a long time ago and... and fans just keep rolling up to him.
2: Diplo is another artist that uh, needs to be mentioned, Uh, if only because I don't really see him at the center of this, but he always seems to be on a fascinating fringe of everything cool that's been happening in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. What is his role in all of this?
0: Yeah, he's always kind of everywhere. You know, I mean, he he came up through hip-hop. I remember seeing him DJ a House Party in Montreal where he played hip-hop and reggae, you know, like 10 years ago. And then... You know, he's just kind of warmed his way in. I, I don't mean that disparagingly. Um, but, you know, he's, he's always got a hand in everything. And I think with, with MIA, with kind of his championing of Brazilian funk karaoke and sort of global ghetto music styles, I think he was important in, in kind of, again, teaching the rock kids to dance because he had this sort of hipster cachet, and yet he was representing dance music from around the world.
1: Well, Philip, we've been talking a lot about the big names. Who are some of the up-and-comers that you're most excited about as a critic?
0: One of my favorites right now is an artist named John Talabot from Barcelona. He is making a sort of uh, it's house music. It's its a little bit disco. It's a little bit Balearic. It's, it's very song-oriented, it's very melodic, and it's really easy to listen to. Um, it's fantastic. He's, he's working on a new live show now. Last year I was, I mean this is old news, I was, I was super interested in Subtract, uh, I'm a big fan of him, so I, I see him as somebody who's taking kind of dubstep-like musics and orienting it in a different direction. In my own sort of moonlighting as a DJ, I'm really partial to a lot of kind of analog, deep house and deep techno by, um, strangely the Netherlands has a really strong scene. So labels like Rush Hour and Clone. There's a lot of interesting things happening in New York right now. There's a label called Lies. Uh, There's a label called Throne of Blood. Forthead and Caribou, just to throw out a couple other names. I mean, they've been doing, you know, for, they both came up, interestingly, sort of in the electronica boom of, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, headphone music, I guess you could call it. And in the last couple of years, both of them have really sort of re emerged as really canny dance music producers, um, bringing together elements of African music, elements of classic house and disco with some sort of oddball pop and putting it all together both as DJs and as producers and I think they're doing some really exciting work
1: It's been an absolute pleasure talking to Philip Sherbin, spin contributor, control voltage uh, blogger. Philip, thanks for talking EDM with us.
0: Thank you both. It's been a lot of fun.
1: Greg, I think Philip just did a fantastic job uh, giving us a broad overview of the world of EDM today. But I don't know about you. I'm having serious deja vu. As a journalist and critic for going on three decades, I have twice in my career covered the explosion of electronic dance music as the next big thing, starting with that uh, Detroit techno sound in the late 80s, kind of concurrent with the 80s house music in Chicago. And then after grunge, there was a major push by the major labels. The next big thing is going to be electronic dance music. But it didn't even start there. There's
2: no doubt, Jim, that this art form, and it is an art form, goes back a long way. We're talking about the 70s, when people started using machines to make wonderful, transcendent music. I think a lot of people look upon Kraftwerk, that German art rock band, as the Beatles of the electronic music movement. When they released that single, Autobahn, in the mid-70s, and it climbed the pop charts, I think that was a new era, a new dawn for this type of music. And all of the innovations have been built on that era ever since. people like Brian Eno experimenting with synthesizers and keyboards, Roxy Music, David Bowie, but also the disco era. We just did a show highlighting the innovations of people like Giorgio Moroder and Donna Summer, making records entirely out of the human voice and machines, those synthesizers and keyboards creating this entrancing music. Detroit techno, Chicago house music, building on those innovations in the early 80s. That was picked up on the DJs in Europe in the late 80s, that island of Ibiza, In the Mediterranean, turning into the rave capital of the world, raves spread like wildfire across Europe, and suddenly this music that had begun in the underground dance clubs in Detroit and Chicago had become a European phenomenon that really has not abated ever since. I mean, it's going strong to this day. We had another wave of it in the late 90s, as you mentioned. You know, we kept hearing those buzzwords. The computer is going to replace the guitar as the main instrument in music. It didn't happen. But for a brief time there, remember that U.K. electronic band, The Prodigy, had a number one album in the United States in 1997. You had major hits from people like the Chemical Brothers, Fat Boy Slim, and Moby. Then it got driven underground again. The associations with the ecstasy and the drug culture got a lot of people scared of these raves and and suddenly it became this outlaw art form that couldn't get a permit to put on a show in big cities like Chicago and was driven underground. But it has reemerged yet again in recent years. More reputable promoters, larger stadium shows, more production values, huge artists. It's at
1: an unrivaled level of popularity 40 years after it began. Now, Greg, some people think that it's really all about the gathering, the dancing, and the drugs, and that this electronic dance music, making music with machines, is not really an art form. I would say listen to the best artists that this genre has ever produced, and they rank with any musician you could name. That having been said, with the exception of Bass Nectar, I'm not really seeing anybody in the current explosion of EDM who is equaling the insane invention and innovation. ...of a lot of those 90s artists. I'm thinking of the Aphex Twin, Orbital, and the Orb. Those musicians, live and on record, were truly breaking new ground. Maybe the new EDM generation will eventually match that. We'll just have to keep listening. Do you have a thought on EDM or somebody you can't believe we missed in our discussion give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, Greg and I review the new album, From Garbage. back to sound opinions i'm jim de my partner is greg Cott, and you're listening to a tune called blood for poppies from not your kind of people the new album the fifth in their career from garbage greg takes me back to the 90s hmm. a little bit of nostalgia here garbage started with three producers and friends in wisconsin butch vig Duke Erickson and Steve Marker. These were guys who mainly operated behind the scenes, running a very successful studio in Wisconsin, and Vig in particular becoming the producer of alternative rock in the 90s, working with Nirvana on Nevermind, Sonic Youth, Smashing Pumpkins, and L7. But they had been musicians with roots in a band called Spooner, playing roots rock in the 80s indie era, and I think they got an itch after recording all these other artists to make some music. On their own. They started coming together writing some songs, and then they saw a young woman named Shirley Manson from Scotland performing with an obscure band called Angelfish on MTV. They wound up recruiting her into their project, scored a number of huge radio hits with their debut, Only Happy When It Rains, Stupid Girl, went on to produce a number of fine records, and then sort of went on hiatus around 2005. Last year, They decided to come back together again, record a new album, Not Your Kind of People. Let's play a song from it and then come back and give our opinions. This is I Hate Love by Garbage on Sound Opinions.
2: I Hate Love from Garbage. The new album is called Not Your Kind of People. Seven years went by, but it really doesn't sound like it, Jim. No, uh, not at all. In fact, we could go back another seven years, maybe 14 years, and say, you know, this is a garbage album that could have been made in 1995 when this group was at its peak. At the time, it sounded like a fairly fresh sound, this combination of electronic music with a rock combo— Almost like robot rock with this dynamic personality up front in Shirley Manson. I think they were always a very good singles band. I was never a huge appreciator of the individual albums. But, you know, you put together the 10 or 12 best garbage songs and you've got a decent 90s nostalgia hits compilation. I don't think Not Your Kind of People really changes the formula all that much. We've got a couple of decent singles on this record, and the rest sounds very much like a band who is sort of treading water at this point. They are not giving us anything new. They're basically just reminding us, hey, we still exist. And I don't really think that's good enough to get attention right now. I mean, if you're going to come (laughs) back after seven years, you better have something new to put on the table. As it is, I think people are going to be reminded of what they loved about this band in 95, 96, but they're not going to have any good reason to go out and buy this record. So I'd say burn the singles and trash the rest. Oh,
1: that's interesting, Greg. You know, you rock critics always overvalue the new. (laughs) Garbage, to me, was always formulaic. They were not in the first tier, as far as I was concerned, of the 90s alternative rock innovators. You know, this was clearly kind of a cash-in project Mm. with these three backstage studio guys, and they always looked really uncomfortable. Shirley Manson is a great front person, but when when Butch Vig and the boys had to start wearing eyeliner and look a little goth to fit Mm. the image, you know, they really looked sort of miserable, especially to those of us who remember seeing Spooner, and I know you do. That having been said, I learned to stop worrying and love Garbage because those singles were so irresistible. There's no way not to be swept up in them. There's about five really great songs on this album. They are as good as anything Garbage has given us. I guess we need a little bit of electronic goth dance pop. Why the heck not? I'll tell you this, I'd certainly rather listen to anything Garbage does today than Smashing Pumpkins. Ultimately, though, Greg, I agree with you. This is just a Burn It record. We have some thank yous to say on the way out. A special thanks each week to Sean Acoin. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. Our production assistants are Annie Minoff and Michael DeBonis. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside-Malatea, has been running around all week with glow sticks ready for the rave. <laughs>
2: I was sleeping, gently napping when I heard the phone.
0: Who is on the other end talking? Am I even home? Did you see what she did to him? Did you hear what they said? Just a New York conversation
2: rattling in
0: my
1: head.
2: On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say.
1: New messages. Hi. This is
0: Chris from Brooklyn, just calling to thank you for the disco show and all the great records from Philly Soul to Shame, Shame, Shame to Chic. This is especially important coming from a program that calls itself a rock and roll talk show. You know, it shouldn't be controversial in 2012 that disco is part of and draws from and contributes to rock and roll, but somehow that idea just continues to be sacrilege to new generations of disco-hating rock dudes. That includes, I would guess, the many listeners to your show who are always calling in, demanding more rock.
2: I'd like you to play some guitar bands if you get the chance. We'd very much appreciate it. The other gang that needs schooling is the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, who somehow just saw fit to let a legend like
0: Donna Summer pass away without giving her her due. Just want to say, Nile Rodgers of Chic is a legend, too. And he's been in and out of hospitals the last decade. Just saying. Peace.
2: Hi, this is Stuart Tucker calling from Hamtramck, Michigan. About uh, sampling the folk recordings, should contemporary musicians do that? I'd rather have them listen to them, be aware of the sounds that they hear, the way the musicians sang and played, and and let that affect their own development. I certainly don't want to hear those recordings put on a grid and Pro Tools and their time perfected. of this cut and paste I think uh, listen and learn Jack White he's a great great modern guy and I think that's probably been his approach anyway keep
1: up the good work guys bye Yeah, my name is Kate, and I'm from Chicago. I'm calling to thank you for turning me on to the screaming females. It was utterly fantastic. I am 62 years old. I am a classical music fan, only because when I listen to classical music, it's always, always done well. These kids they don't know what a circle of fifths is? Who cares? They know music. You don't know how delighted I am to have heard really good musicianship on your show. They are young Mozart. Thank you. Bye.
0: Please don't let